I lit out of there like a house on fire. And wow. Gray was thrilled because I wasn't trying to slow him down anywhere. He, we just ran like the cowboys were after us. And, <laughs> wow. and it was so exhilarating, Tracy. Every jump came up and flowed. It was just, we were so, we were in that zone mm. of where, every, where we're just one being working toward the same thing. And the horses were coming in tired and exhausted. And Gray just flew through the finish flags as fast as he did when he left. He, we, he was amazing. Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, a podcast for horse lovers everywhere. I'm your host, Tracy Malone, and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley in the northwest of Brisbane. This land I live on is Waka Waka and Turbul country. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to their ancestors, past and present. And I'd also like to extend that respect to each and every one of you listening. This week's show is brought to you by Equitana Australia. Equitana is happening from the 15th to 18th of November this year in Melbourne. Did you know Stacey Westfall will be there this year? And it will be her only demonstration outside of the US this year. I can't wait to see her in action. To get your tickets for Equitana, go to their website equitana.com.au I'll also pop the link for Equitana in the show notes. I hope to see you there. Make sure you come and say hi if you see me. In this episode, I speak with Kim Wallace from The Way of the Horse. This is a long one, folks. I thought about doing it in two parts, but I couldn't make you wait that long for this incredible story. Through most of this interview, I had a lump in my throat, and at the end of it, I just wanted to reach through the internet all the way across the ocean to America and give Kim an enormous hug and say, my word, you've been through a lot. Kim Wellness knows what it's like to live your dreams and be at the pinnacle of the horse riding world after winning Rolex on her horse, the Grey Goose, in 1982. She trained with internationally renowned Jack LaGoff and rode at badminton. She's also ridden as a double to Melissa Gilbert in the movie Sylvester. However, in 1991, she also experienced the lowest of lows when she lost her daughter who was murdered. I know, right? Kim then later had a car accident where she had to be revived. Her explanation of this time is incredible. Her daughter was there. She wanted to stay, but it wasn't her time. Kim is one of those people who was born part horse. Horse was her first word. She can hear when they speak and she has now decided a great life lived is one where she can teach people about these incredible sentient beings and how you too can have true connection with your horse. Here is Kim. Kim, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. Can you first, Kim, tell me a little bit about what it is that you do? I focus on relationship between uh, the guardian of a horse and the horse, and because the relationship is more important than any particular way that you can communicate and relate to each other. If you have a relationship built on trust and a mutual honoring and the human has created a safe space for the horse and the horse understands how to be a safe space for the human, then 
a relationship ensues from that that is really pretty spectacular. And within that context, I focus on biomechanics in riding and classical alignment in the horses to help. It's all related, you know, the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual. It's all related. Sounds beautiful. The wonderful thing is about all of the trainers that I interview on this podcast is that complete connection. It's something that I believe most horse owners dreamed about when we were children and it's actually starting to come true. It's actually, it's really starting to be grounded in the world and there's enough of us out there now and enough people who are training like you that we can actually achieve our dreams, which to me is so incredibly exciting. Indeed. Well, Kim, I look forward to getting deeper into how you got there, but let's start at the beginning. Did you grow up with horses? I did not, no. At what age did they come into your life? When I was 16. My parents were, uh, my father was um, an army colonel, so we moved around a lot. And I, uh, my mother said my first word was horse. Oh. So I was born feeling like I was a horse. I acted like a horse. <laughs> I was very embarrassing to my folks back in the 1950s. This was not normal by any means. And just had such a connection with horses from the beginning. But my dad and his wisdom said that I could not get a horse until he retired because he knew that moving around, they'd have to sell the horse and it would just be heart-wrenching. So yeah, I survived. I survived crying myself to sleep most nights because I didn't have one. But eventually the dream came true. Tell me about that first horse. How did that all happen? Well, I reminded my dad when he retired of his promise. And so he honored that and they found a place where we could keep a horse that was nearby enough that I could ride my bicycle if I needed to. And he fixed it up. It was an old place. He fixed it up. And then we went looking for a horse. And of course, the very first horse we went to look at out in a field I fell in love with. And we bought that horse for $200. Beautiful. Yeah. So I I named him Flame. War Flame was his name. And he was an incredible first horse. I, I was so fortunate to find this horse. He was such a wonderful guy. And he was very wise and he cribbed. I didn't know what cribbing was. He taught me quite a bit about a lot of things. What kind of horse is he? I mean, he was a horse in a field. Nobody knew his heritage, but I would say he was probably a Morgan Quarter Horse Cross. Mm-hmm. And chestnut. And he, uh, he took me and my best friend on bare, double bareback and double with saddle rides all over the place we would jump double um he really put up with a lot (laughs) but but one of the biggest things I learned from him was that he if he said no to something there was a reason for it Mm -hmm. and he taught me a really important lesson because for some reason he would Um, not canter in a circle. I don't know why. He just wouldn't. And my dad wanted me to be able to show, so he hired a cowboy to come and teach this horse that he had to go when one said he did. And 
And the guy started out gentle, but he, he ended up using a rubber hose all over my horse, Ooh. raising terrible welts. And my horse still wouldn't canter in a circle. So I sobbingly begged them to stop, which eventually they did because they got nowhere. I apologized to the horse and, and, and decided if I was going to show, it would have to be in show jumping where you could trot over fences if you needed to. And this horse could trot five feet without blinking an eye. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what we did. And, and, um, and, it, and if he was on a trail and said no, there was always a reason why not to go down that trail. So very valuable lessons. When did you see Rolex and have the dream of representing your country? Was it when you had this? The, the dream was before Rolex even was. Mm. And was that before you had a horse or was that while you had the first horse or was it later? When before I had a horse, I wanted to be on the Olympic team. And and here's the interesting thing, Tracy. I wanted to jump and I wanted to jump desperately, but I was very fearful of it because one time my mother let me go riding when we lived in Texas and the cowboy that ran the place said to me, you, you're actually quite a good rider just all on your own. You can just go out there and just go out there and ride, come back in an hour. Well, he had no idea that, how adventurous I was. And so I tried to jump the horse over a gully because, you know, I saw that in the movies. (laughs) (laughs) I think I was all of 10 years old. Oh my word. I know. And, um, and the horse jumped it, but he jumped it the way a lot of horses jump ditches, which was very awkwardly and lurching and it scared me badly. So I had this deep-seated trauma about jumping, but over time I nurtured it and borrowed other people's horses and had them help me, my friends, and got through the fear. So I did not know about eventing. I just thought it was show jumping that was in the Olympics. And yet I... And did you just see this on TV and say, that's what I want to do? No, I saw it in magazines and books because Ah. we're talking 60s here. I mean, we had TV, but... But the horse sports weren't televised. Wouldn't have been on there, yes. Uh, But we did live in D.C. and my parents would take me to the big show in Washington, D.C. every fall. So I got to be right there while all these great people like William Steinkraus and Frank Chappell and uh, the Galloping Grandfather, Snowman, all those people were show jumping in those days. So that really took my fancy. To answer your question, other people jumped rails and standards but I was always going out and finding other people's junk and building things on the sides of hills that was just far more interesting to me I thought that was really cool and then uh, years later I met my husband-to-be and he informed me of this sport called eventing and I was like oh oh my god that's what I have to do so that's where the dream of eventing at the upper levels yeah, but that first horse that you had mm-hmm. seemed to head you in the right direction oh. without you even knowing it. Absolutely he did because he jumped anything and jumped height and he jumped poles and he jumped um, just dressers and anything else we could find and put stuff out. It was kind of crazy. Wow. Set up from a very young age. Okay, so what happened next? How so? When you met your husband to be, mm-hmm. you did you have a new horse by then? Where did it take you after your first horse? I had I had 
two new horses by that time. My dad realized that showing this horse really wasn't um, going to work out very well. Flame, showing flame was not his forte. So he went, unbeknownst to me, searching for another horse. And he came home one day and he said, I found the perfect horse for you. And, um, you know, just come out and ride it and see what you think. And he, and I said, well, gee, dad, you know, where is he? What's he like? And he said, well, he said, <laughs> he said, well, the, he, the horse has a little bit of a problem. He said he, he threw the lady that owned him and broke her arm and he threw the trainer and I tried to ride him and he threw me and I said, dad, I don't want this horse. And Thanks, dad, said, dad said, Oh, you can ride him. And I'm like, I don't want this horse. I mean, here I went from the perfect first horse who took care of me. Right. So that I go ride this horse and, and the horse bolted with me too. And I just, in, I looked around and all I could see that could stop this horse was the barn. So I just ran him into the side of the barn and he, he hit it. I mean, he was running blind. So dad thought that was great. I could ride the horse and he bought him. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, uh, does my father love me or not? <laughs> <laughs> wow. But, but that horse was a, amazing I kept having an intuition that he was running away from pain in his mouth. And of course, everybody I spoke to said, oh, no, no, you have to put a stronger bit on. And finally, mm. nothing was holding him. I mean, the horse, if something spooked him, he would just, he would run through fences. He would run through, he was dangerous. I got hurt a lot. Mm -hmm. But finally, I just saved up my money and I bought um, a Western Bosal, you know, the rawhide noseband type thing. And mm -hmm. I, I put that on him and he never ran away again. Ah, there you go. So he, he taught me always listen inside that inner voice is, that was, is true. Yeah. Only every single time. Every single time, Tracy. It really is. It has all down through my life. The only times I've gotten in trouble are when I do not listen to that inner voice. And did you do jumping on him as well? I did. I did. Yeah. But not, not, I rode him more Western. Mm -hmm. He had a little bit of gated blood in him and he just, he didn't like to jump as much as flame did. So I um, showed him in Western classes. Oh, I know what I did with him. I did um, uh, Gymkhana type classes, speed classes. Mm. Yeah. And then um, I had always, always, my heart was always drawn to Arabians. And so I subscribed to all the, net, the horse magazines, all the posters I had on my wall were of stallions. I was just enamored of the whole Arabian horse myth and reality. And one of the main breeders in the United States at that time um, was a woman called Basie Tankersley, who owned Almara Arabians, which happened to be in Maryland, not so far from where we lived in Virginia. And she ran a contest one year. And, oh, it was in all the magazines, this contest. You took a test. It was a test and on the history of the Arabian horse. So I sent in my application. My mother said I could. And I studied everything I could find on the Arabian horse. And then we went to her big farm. She was having a big auction of her stock and there was a lot of hoopla and when we got there we realized that they were having a separate auction just for 4-hers you know 4-h no it's, a, it's a head heart 
Hands and Health. It's a like a local organized um, farming is mainly oriented toward farm kids to learn more about husbandry. So hmm. there was a 4-H horse club nearby. We didn't have a pony club at that time that I knew about. So we did, I did 4-H. And so she was auctioning off two 18-month-old stud colts, it turned out, that were three-quarter Arabian. And my dad said, after I took the test, we were wandering around waiting for the main event, the main auction. And he said, well, let's just pop into this 4-H auction. And then he said, you'd really like to bid, wouldn't you? And I said, yeah. He said, well, have some fun. I'll stop you when it gets, you know, when I feel like we're getting somewhere. Well, they ended the auction early and we had the last bid. So suddenly I had two horses. Wow. And I ran, I ran to the stables. I found this colt that we had bought, which he was, all, he was almost black, but he was gray. You know, he was really dark. Mm. And I walked into his stall and I said, oh, my God, you're mine. And he bit me <laughs> hard. <laughs> and I said, okay, I think I'll leave now. <laughs> and that horse, you know, the, um, the Black Stallion in Walter Farley's books? Yes. Yes. Well, he ended up becoming like the Black Stallion. That He was amazing. He was horribly dangerous when I'm sure Basil Tankersley did not know that this horse had so many issues when she, to sell it to a child. But I was 16, 17 at the time when we got this horse. And I, I didn't know anything about starting a young horse. And we got him home and he turned out to um, be very, he had a lot of problems. He charged, like if you walked in the field, he would run up and grab you. If I tried to lunge him, he would charge at me. And he was, I, to feed him, you had to have a stick. He was just, he had apparently been teased by some boys between the time that we bought him and the time that we got him home. I was going to say there'd have to be something in there. You yeah, can't get a horse that's just born yeah. like that. That's right. That's what happened. He got teased. Mm. So I was at a loss. But the, here's the thing that happened. He was a stallion, so we had to geld him. And it was a stud colt. So we gelded him, and I happened to be the only one around when the vet came. And um, I didn't drive at the time. We didn't have cell phones. And the lady that owned the boarding facility wasn't there. It was a small private place. I was all alone. And the vet uh, castrated him, and then he said he should wake up out of that anesthesia in about 15 minutes. Well, he had a reaction to the anesthesia. The vet left. I was all alone with the horse, and he could not get up. Mm. And he dragged himself around that field with his front legs, trying to get up and getting exhausted and flopping down. And all I could do was stay with him and talk to him and soothe him and do my best. And, and we bonded. We bonded in that. Mm. And after that, he was my horse. Wow. I couldn't, he wasn't safe around other people, but he would protect me. He would get between me and other people. He would go after them if he didn't like them. If I introduced him and told him they were okay, then he was all right. But I could never leave him alone at a show. He was, um, 
he was pretty amazing. And I didn't know how to train a young horse, so I just read books. <laughs> God bless this horse. <laughs> I called him uh, Raffy. He was of Raffles breeding. And he, he and I just worked through everything together so that eventually I could whistle him up out of a 200-acre field. I could climb on him with nothing, no lead rope, no halter, and I could do, you know, sliding stops. And he did both jumping and Western. And Beautiful. Truly amazing. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Oh, you've, you've already had the dream childhood. It's incredible the, the three <laughs> horses you've had. You've turned three horses around. All whilst, um, all whilst not actually being a traditional horse person with all the skills that so many others have. It's, it's exactly. Sometimes yes. the less you know is better. Exactly. Yes. Growing up part horse helps, I'm sure. It does. <laughs> <laughs> and I think all those movies I watched, you know, the Westerns and my friend Flicka, I mean, we're going back to the you know, movies that were made in the 40s that I saw in the 50s as a young, impressionable child and reading Walter Farley and Kipling, you know, the it just um, really, I didn't see any reason. The animals always spoke to me, so I didn't see any reason why I shouldn't answer and talk back to them. Mm, beautiful. So where did that take you next? Well, there was one other horse. There was a purebred Arabian and then, but I didn't have him very long before uh, I was married at this point, and my husband got a job so I could finish college. He got a job in the local town where my college was, and the man that hired him was very impressed with his skill, and after three years asked him to, would he please start a factory in Ireland? Wow. So we ended up going to Ireland when our daughter was only three months old. And it was whilst there that I found the Grey Goose. Mm, and the legend begins. And a legend begins. <laughs> and it's due to Raffi, I have to say, it's all due to Raffi because the Grey Goose at five looked very much like Raffi at five. He was a dark, dark gray, almost black. And he had that a little bump between his eyes and a kind of small squinting eye, which Raph also had. And he just had that belligerent, I don't trust humans and I don't, you know, I don't like them. Like Raph and Gray both had the mindset that a good offense beat a good defense every time. Mm. So, what so type of horse is the Gray Goose? The Gray Goose was... Uh, Seven-eighths thoroughbred and one-eighth Irish draft. Mm, so nice and big. 16-1, not huge, mm. and built more like a thoroughbred. Very, In fact, he was put together out of spare parts, actually. He had a, a long head and a long neck and a long back. Um, he had His parts were all good, but they didn't. I mean, people really laughed when we ended up bringing him back to the States. And they came to see our fancy new Irish horse. <laughs> They're like, you're kidding, right? This, really? You brought this horse all the way over from Ireland? And I'm like, yeah. And that's part of how he got his name because he was uh, on the ground walking around. He was nothing much to look at. 
and he was very clumsy. He tripped and stumbled and was not very graceful, but when he picked up a trot or a canter, he was amazing. Wow. And it was like when a, when a goose flies, well, part of the goose thing was because he was so fearful of everything. I've never ridden a more frightened horse in my life than the gray goose. He was just afraid of everything. Wow. Um, Where did you find him? Well, he was uh, in a nearby stable uh, where we went to ride. So my husband also rode and or also rides. He still rides. And my ex-husband that he rides now. So we wrote, we wanted to ride. My, my ex-husband and I wanted to ride. And so um, we would go often to the nearby stable and we would fox hunt and um, they encouraged us because we could both ride well to ride their young stock. And Gray ended up being one of those horses, but it wasn't for a few years because he was only three when I first met him and they don't start the horses till they're four. So fantastic. Yeah, but he was so difficult. And at that time in that part of the country, if a young horse was having trouble, if they were having trouble starting a young horse, then they just hunted them. They just took them out fox hunting, figuring that would teach them a lot. Only with Gray, he just ran off and and he ended up stumbling and damaging both front knees. Mm. So they, they turned him out for a year. And it was after that that they brought him back in to start again. And I came back from some pretty serious injuries in, in that same time frame. I had some pretty serious injuries and a very severe illness. And I came back just wanting to ride a horse that I could stick with. I said, could, could I just have one horse that I could stick with? And they said, sure, pick one. And I picked gray and they said, not that one. You don't want that one. <laughs> No, I said, yeah, I do. So I ended up with two horses. The one they wanted me to pick, who was a beautiful bay with four white socks and gray. And uh, gray was a, a really significant challenge. He dumped me every day for a long time. He, he would leave me if, if he got frightened on the road, he would dump me off and run back to the barn. And then I'd have to walk back sometimes a long way. He was um, quite a challenge. Mm. How did you crack him? Well, uh, he oh, loved how did he crack you. No, no. <laughs> was he cracking him? I was I who had to figure out his nature. Yeah, you know? that's it. He was the yeah. one who had been traumatized, so mm. I had to figure him out. The first road into Gray's mind was through our daughter. So Andy was three at that time, and the gray goose always was enamored of anything um, young, like a puppy or a kitten or a child or anything that was a baby or young. He was just all mushy over, and he loved Andy. And since I came in with her, he began to sort of look at me like, well, you are a little different. And I, I tried my best to listen to him. So when I would lead him in the indoor ring, when I would first go to get on, he would always dump me in the indoor. So I thought, well, what if I just walk him around in each direction and let him really sniff and look at everything in the indoor before I get on? And then he didn't dump me. Mm. And, um, Slowly learning. It's beautiful. 
Yeah, right. And the Stumbling, the, um, the owners of the farm were quite knowledgeable and they said, well, take him out in the field and just give him the buckle and let him fall down. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> but that did help. He did mm-hmm. begin to start to pay more attention. And, and what do you mean by give him the buckle and let him fall down? Can you? Oh, thank you. Yes. Really give him a free rein so that I wasn't controlling him at all. Just let him walk and find his own footing and sit back. Of course, sitting forward would have been very dangerous. And, um, cause he went down on his knees fairly often. Mm-hmm. And then he began to get more trusting and, um, but he still, he was a, not a happy horse. My, my dream, well, we were coming close to the end of our time there. And I thought to myself, oh, I so want to bring a horse home. And, you know, this horse is weird. He's, he's but boy, he has talent. Because I knew he could run fast because of all the times he'd run off with me. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, I knew he could jump anything because nothing would hold this horse in. Nothing would hold this horse in. If he, if he wanted to get out, he would jump out of any enclosure. Wow. And I thought, man, he's comfortable. And I, I had uh, broken some bones in my back and he was comfortable to ride because of his long back. And so I talked to my husband and he agreed that we could, I could buy him. So the second I did, I named him the Gray Goose because he was a silly goose and everybody called him the Gray. He was just the Gray Horse. That was his name before. And, um, and yet when he flew, when he was running and jumping, the horse was just poetry in motion. Mm. So after I bought him, I took him to my, our first event, his first event and my first event. And... He, I think about the third fence on cross country, he, something clicked in him and he said, oh my God, this is amazing. I love this. And he started looking for the flags. So we won that event, surely on the strength of our cross country test. But wow. he, he just finally found something that humans did with him that he considered to be fun. So then um, when we brought him over to the States, I think he was so traumatized by all the, you know, the, the li- in those days, they still lifted the crates up and put them in a plane. They didn't have the system that they do now where the horses just think they're in a horse box. Mm. So he was in a, an open crate where he could see, and they picked him up with a crane and put him in the plane. And, oh my and God. then he had to be, I know, he, he had to walk through a pool of disinfectant, when he, and he hated water <laughs> when he got to the States. And, and, and so when he came, interestingly enough, a lot of horses kind of have their brains fried by flying internationally. Mm-hmm. But it was like something in gray clicked and said, well, if I've survived this, maybe I'm not in as much danger as I thought. Wow, that's yeah. huge. That's really I got lucky. huge. Yeah, you did. I got really lucky. Yeah, he stopped running off with me. And, well, he still would from time to time, but not on a daily basis. And he started listening better. And we lived in the mountains of Virginia, so I didn't have a lot of input. 
but I read magazines and I read every book I could get my hand on. A lot of the classical dressage instruction books. I would bring them out and put them on a fence post and put a rock to the open page so I could stop and read and then go try something and come back. And I would watch my shadow to see how we looked. Did it look like the picture? No. <laughs> I guess I better change something. <laughs> wow. And my husband built four jump standards, four sets of jump standards, and I had eight poles, and we had four, eight oil drums and four locust posts. So the I did, you know, I set up show jumping courses with my poles, and I used the locust posts on the oil drums on our varied terrain. We had 17 acres of varied terrain. And, and that's how the Great Goose and I got to Rolex. Wow. Wow. That's, it's that simple, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm half Polish, Tracy. And I just, when I lock my teeth into something, you know, it's just, I just knew I had to do this. And, and so we would travel eight hours to competitions with uh, our son was born between training and prelims. So poor Brian got dragged everywhere as an infant. And I would, I would nurse him between uh, dressage and, and cross country. And, and um, that didn't work so well if the timing was off, but <laughs> we yeah. just made it, we just made it work. You know, yeah. we just, and all, I just went one step at a time. I, I had the dream. I had no idea if we could accomplish it. Accomplish it. I had my fear. He had his fear. So and what was your fear? Your fear was jumping, was it? Still? Well, you know, here's the thing. I, I got so brave jumping, but when I was pregnant, my hormones changed. And so when we landed in Ireland with Andy at three months old, I was so excited to go fox hunting and I got up on a horse and, and got ready to go and, and, and was terrified. And I didn't even know where that terror had come from, but I figured out later it was the hormones, mm. you know, parents aren't supposed to be doing crazy things like, like we did. Yeah. <laughs> it absolutely hunting. changes your world. It's like, hold on. What what will happen? There's things that could happen now. Yeah, the consequences yeah. are a lot bigger once the once the pregnancy comes in. Yeah, so I had to work through that, and and every year I had to work myself through it again. So, um, and Gray was the same way. It was like he he could jump a tall building with a single bound, you know, but he had to, to build his own self confidence, and so we worked on each other that way you know, the trust between us um the love and the trust turned that fear into being able to go forward and and succeed in a joyful way mm. and that's that's all of that relationship is it isn't it like when he's scared you've got him and then when you're scared he's got you and it just goes back between each other and just builds something so strong and and so unbeatable yes and he was trained so unconventionally because not having input from educated sources and not not I mean I I just conditioned him according to what the magazine said to do and 
we started to climb up the levels and cross country. He loved it so much. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't really need to do any training there. He just would hit his rhythm and I would stay with him. And we both loved long spots and, and it worked out for us. He had scope to burn. So, um, it, the in 1978, the, um, uh, was the year that the world championships were in Lexington, Kentucky. It was the first time they were, an event was held at the horse park there. And my, ex, my husband and I went to watch and I, I walked that course and I turned to him and I said, I don't see any jump here that we couldn't jump now. There's no way we could jump this whole thing as a course, but by next year, I want to come back and jump this. And he, he was like, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the so, great underestimators. Well, you know, all along the way, I, I quit telling people my dream after a while because everybody didn't, they just thought that was just too wild. And, and when I was coming up, I asked some people who knew, I said, what does it take to be on the team? And they said, well, you have to be able to spend long periods of time away from home. You have to have multiple horses. You have to have a lot of money. You have to have a lot of education. And I thought, I can't do any of those. I've got two very young children. I can't leave home. <laughs> so I, I, we don't have much money. I've got this one great horse with a young one coming up, but not at that level. And But you know what? I'm just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and doing our thing and see just to see how far we can go. So we were doing intermediate uh, by 1979 the next year and they ran the course as intermediate because it had been so terribly hot and humid in Kentucky for the world championships in September. And they ran this event in May and it was the exact same conditions, 90% humidity with temperatures in the nineties and the horses were coming in. I went, out to the vet box early on and asked the vet what were the temperatures the horses were coming in at and she said 107 the horses temperatures were 107 and I said what do I do and she told me so I prepared for all of that and I I thought you know strategy and tactics I thought well, the chances are if it's run in May it's going to be just as hot as it was in September so when I conditioned gray then I did it in the middle of the day. In the hottest part of the day, we did our conditioning so we could get used to that horrible level of heat. Mm. And it stood us in good, in good stead. I think I was the only one that went out on that course excited to, to be doing it. I was so excited to be there and, and to test our skills on these amazing obstacles. And, um, and, and we were the only ones to make the time. Wow. Yeah. Grace said to me partway around the course, I can't breathe anymore. And I said, well, I can't either, but this happens to us when we're conditioning. And we know that if we just keep going, we're going to be okay. And he's like, okay. And he caught his second wind and I caught mine. And, and we had all the ice and everything ready for when he came in off the cross country. And um, I think we came in second at that competition. And, and that's when I got invited to come train with a team. Wow. And what did that entail, training with a team? 
And how did he go after the race, first of all? So he came off and he cooled down okay and he went, mm -hmm. we did good? Oh, yeah, he was great. He yeah. was great. He, we did the show jumping the next day and we came in second. Wow. Yeah, no, he was fine. He was um, uh, something that a lot of people don't understand about European horses, and I, I had to train Jack Legoff to this um, as much as he knew. He, he didn't know this about some horses, and a lot of them actually. They don't do well in hot and humid. They just don't have, or they didn't back then, the same type of weather conditions. And I learned, Gray taught me, um, not to follow the conventional cooling down seri series of that time. In those days, you always walked a horse after you exercised him and he was hot and sweaty and breathing hard. You walked him until his breathing was calmed down and then you put water on him, but only on his legs and his chest and you never put it on a horse's back and you, you know, and I learned with Gray, I had to get water on him immediately, right away, straight away. While he was walking around, I had to put water on him. And then his breathing would come right down. But if I didn't, his breathing wouldn't come down. Mm. So he taught me an important thing there. I guess because I didn't know how to do it properly, I just listened to the horses. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I had to use intuition and and creativity because I just didn't know. So, which, um, which begets the question, what is properly? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, after all, we only mount from the left because men wore swords on exactly. the right side. That's, exactly. that's the only reason. And people to this day don't know that. Mm. Mm. Yes. Okay. So you got invited to train with the team. How exciting. How did that go? Oh, <laughs> Well, it was in Massachusetts in February, January, February. So it was terribly cold. And um, I brought Gray and his half-sister, the young mare that we had brought over from Ireland as well. And then uh, they loaned me two horses to ride because there were four lessons a day. Um, the grandparents took care of the children for two weeks because it was a two-week session. And I knew that I had a long way to go when it came to my equitation, to my riding um, technique. I knew that, that nobody else could ride Gray the way I did. And of course, when, they, when Gray first started becoming famous, everybody wanted to buy him and pair him with a really well-known event rider. And I was like, no, if you want the horse, you have to take me. <laughs> mm. I'm trainable. I am trainable. <laughs> you can train me. I'll, I, I want to learn. And Jack Legoff had quite a reputation of, of being caustic and people, everybody warned me, he's going to make you cry. He'll keep working on you until you cry. And I thought, mm -mm, no, he's not going to make me cry. <laughs> and he was very nice to me. I think because I went in knowing I had a lot to learn and I only wanted to soak up information. I didn't come in with an ego. I didn't come in thinking I was a hot shot. I knew I needed to learn a lot. So he was always very kind to me. Mm. But the first day that we rode, there were mirrors in the indoor, and I had never seen myself ride in mirrors. And I, I looked at me just posting around at a trot warming up, right? And I looked at the three other people that were in that training session, and I truly wanted to crawl under a rock 
I felt awful because my writing was so abysmal compared to theirs. But Jack, really, Jack Legoff taught me an awful lot. And I began to make progress. And interestingly, one of the horses they gave me was a, a horse who had experienced trauma jumping. And so if he even, he was very nervous. And if he even saw a jump, he would start to tremble. And, wow. and so they, I could tell there was something not quite right about this horse when, when they paired him up with me because I saw the looks other people gave each other. So I went to the grooms and I said, what's up with this horse? And they told me. And I, so I went to Jack Legoff and I said, could I have a few moments with him alone before I, I am in the lesson? And he said, sure, ride him during the lunch hour. So I did. And I talked to him the way I talked to horses out loud. And I reassured him and I led him around. And I, I got him to where he started to trust me and not be so frightened around the jumps. And before that, I had started talking to Gray in one lesson. And Jack Legoff jumped all over me and said that nobody talked in his lessons that the ring was his cathedral and he was the priest and he did all the talking. So he heard me, he watched me work with that horse and heard me talking and he came, he was watching the whole time hidden behind something. I didn't know he was watching. And he came mm -hmm. out at the start of the lesson. And he said, Kim, he called me Kim in his French accent. He said, you can talk all you want to. He said, you talk the, the horse, that horse is, listening to you and you are really helping him you talk so wow. that was that was pretty cool and, and he ended up doing a combined test at the end of the you know doing a whole show jumping round after one lunchtime with you well n not after one lunchtime but at the end of the two weeks he was jumping wow. a whole show jumping round but I was able to use him in jumping sessions after that one time yes wow and two weeks is not a long time that's amazing no, it's not, it's not. But, but Tracy, I have to share with you, you know, we took four lessons a day and it was brutal. It was, it was boot camp. It was horse, horsemanship boot camp as, which is as it should be. But I was so sore mm. that I had to, it was on the top floor of the house where we were staying. And I had to, I had to go up the stairs by crawling and I had to come <laughs> down the stairs on my butt because <laughs> my thighs hurt so bad. <laughs> Which every horse rider's had to do at least once in their life. <laughs> wow. So much pain. So how much did you learn in that two weeks yourself? Scads. I learned scads. I learned a lot about dressage and I learned um and and, and interestingly Jack McGough learned about the Grey Goose because he got on Grey and and Jack was famous for being able to get on any horse and improve them immediately. But, but Gray was not any horse and Gray fought. That's just what he did. And he fought Jack and Jack fought him. And there in January in Massachusetts, they were both dripping sweat. Wow. And he got off and he said to me, you and this horse have an agreement. And I said, yes, we do. And that, that was it. You know, he understood that this was a one a, a one-person horse yeah. and that if he wanted to use this horse on his team he really did have to have me brilliant so 
Yeah. So he was he was great in that way then, because of all his yes. oh, this is my cathedral, yada yada. He's still able to understand. He didn't let his ego get in the way of that. No, no, he was brilliant. He was the. I have never met another complete horseman like Jack Legoff. He was, he was a brilliant coach. He was a tough coach. A vet, he would find your breaking point, and so he knew how hard he could push you. Mm. And he would, um, and that's important. It's a, when you're at the international level, it's, it's pressure beyond belief competing at that level. Mm. And so he had to know, you know, what depth of character did people have? And he could be caustic, but he could also be kind. But he not only was a brilliant coach and a brilliant trainer because he had he had uh, ridden at Saumur. I mean, he graduated from Saumur. He really knew his stuff. And he was um, a tactician and a, and a stra uh, strategist about four-year plans, you know, how to, how to build a good team for the next Olympics and the next world championships and how to build the courses in between there to build people up to it. And, also how he had a whole network of spies all over the world that would give him like, oh, they're building this kind of jump and <laughs> he would prepare mm -hmm. us for it. And right down to the, the places where we stayed and where the horses stayed and the hay and the grain. And he just had an incredible international network that he worked with and he really understood human nature and the nature of the horse. Wow. There's a lot of gifts in there, aren't there? What an extraordinary say, human. Mm. Yes, he was an extraordinary human being. So you had your first two weeks. And yes. What was that about? You were in, does that mean you were on the team or was that to see if you were no. selected for the team? It meant I was a possible candidate for the team. Mm -hmm. So every year they they would select the top few riders and they would Put, they would usually take over one or two more than you could have on a team in case a horse broke down or something. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, the winter. The, that was January, February of 1980. And 1980 was an Olympic year. But it was the year that the Olympics were to be in Russia. Mm -hmm. and, and so it was boycotted. Mm -hmm. And so the the eventing portion of the Olympics was held in France and Jack Legoff had this brilliant idea. He was so ahead of his time. He said, in addition to the Olympic team, I'm going to take six riders over for the Olympic team, but I also want to take some junior riders over and run them at Lumulen in Germany the week after the Olympics. And so I um, got to be one of those people. Wonderful. It was wonderful. It was just, you know, right there was the dream come true to be able to go to France and train over there and um, to compete on an, on an international course. I didn't, I think I, I don't think I did very well now that I think, but I, I was the lowest or the highest score on the team, which meant, you know, in, in eventing it's penalty points. So you don't want a high score mm -hmm. because you know, we went around clean, but we had time faults cross country. Our dressage wasn't great. Um, I think I had a rail down in show jumping, but boy, did I learn a lot. And, and the next year, 1981, 
was a year in between the Olympics and the World Championships. And I said to my husband, I really want to go to the World Championships as a team member and I want to do well. And he said, I'm all in. What do you need to do? And I said, I need to learn the science behind what I do intu intuitively. I need to be able to get my brain and my heart on the same wavelength so that I really understand what it is that needs to be done and how to do it the best way. So I took lessons three days a week. I hauled in, in the winter in Connecticut, I hauled my horse to a classical dressage instructor. And when I would go, I would take a lunge lesson on one of her school horses and get tortured. And I would ride gray, and then sometimes I would ride another horse in a lesson. So I was taking multiple lessons three days a week, and the other two days I would go to a show jump instructor. And um, boy, did that really, that, that changed everything. That changed everything. I said, I want to know the science behind this. And they taught that to me, and they worked together, those two people. Just, I mean, they didn't, they didn't know one another, but but the jump instructor would always say, <clears throat> what are you working on in dressage? And then he would incorporate that into the jump session. Wow. And most importantly, most importantly, my daughter's pony club instructor said to me in the summer of 1981, um, 19, I don't remember, it's not important. It was, she said, I think it was 81. She said to me, Kim, I'm having this amazing woman come from, um, New Hampshire, and she's going to do a clinic here for the pony clubbers. But I want you to come too and bring the gray goose. And I trusted her, so I did. And that woman was Sally Swift. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. When I saw her, we arrived early because I, when I go to a clinic, I want to watch all the sessions and we wanted to get the horses, you know, and um, my daughter's pony adjusted and everything. When I saw her teach, the first lesson, I had to go in the tack room and shut the door and cry mm. because I had finally found someone who spoke my language. And for those who don't know, tell us who Sally Swift is. Oh, Sally Swift. Sally Swift and Linda Tellington Jones, I worked with her too, both women, pioneers in their fields. Sally in um, teaching writing from uh, a different perspective than technique. She worked with martial artists and she worked with Alexander technique, which is a, um, a body alignment technique. Sally had scoliosis, severe scoliosis, and she rode as part of, of, uh, of healing, you know, getting better from that scoliosis. But she also did all these martial arts and she did the Alexander and she did color therapy, and she wove all of this into her lessons. So she spoke through visualizations. That's how she taught us. Mm. Feel as if you were a tree with your branches growing up to the heavens and your roots are growing down through the saddle. Um, you know, that type of, um, I was, that was my language because I have learning differences, and auditory does not, go in for me well people telling me what to do I can't I can't understand it nearly as well as somebody giving me a visualization yeah so my husband thought she was crazy 
and he didn't understand why we were spending all this money on this crazy person. And I, but he could see the results and he said, <laughs> whatever works for you. But here's the amazing thing. I had broken the end off my tailbone when I was in Ireland and I rode up to that point uh, from 1973 to 1981. I rode with a, piece of foam down under my underwear to protect the end of that bone that had broken off. Mm-hmm. And Sally Swift said to me, Kim, those bones have long done any sort of healing they need to do. And what's causing you pain now is your muscles are so tight in an effort to protect the bones that they're actually causing the pain. And I, I thought she was insane, but she showed me a technique to a sort of quote unquote melt my muscles. That's also called Feldenkrais mm-hmm. where you're, you're softening, not relaxing because they're still toned to the muscles, but you're softening like ice cream melting in the sun. That's what she told me. And when I did that, I didn't hurt anymore. And suddenly I could sit gray better and she showed me how to balance myself better so that I wasn't in Gray's mouth as much as I was. And, and I suddenly had a new horse, Tracy. It was like, mm-hmm. we went from fighting every single day to suddenly becoming partners. And it was a miracle. Just that first clinic, right? Just that lesson made such a difference in my life. Wow. And I worked with her every time I could, whenever she was in the area, because I couldn't go work with her again, because the children were young. And I worked with Linda Tellington-Jones, who is very into um, that same Feldenkrais technique with animals. And she was so innovative in coming up with exercises to help horses understand where their bodies are in space and how to use them. And this was why Gray was so fearful. He didn't know where his body was in space. It he makes just, sense, doesn't it? When you said that, I thought, oh, that sounds like your gray goose. Yes. Exactly. And he was so long, he just drug his hind in around behind him. And half the time it didn't do what he thought it was supposed to do. Mm. And so meeting Linda and working with her was another huge piece to the puzzle. And then working with these these um, professional instructors who understood the real science behind writing technique by the summer of 1982, Gray and I were a completely different pair and we wound up winning, um, I believe the first and yes, the first and the third selection trial. And that third selection trial was Rolex. That's the year that we won Rolex. Wow. What was that like? I've watched that Rolex video and, oh, my word, one of those jumps would have scared the pants (laughs) off me. But you're jumping into water, you're jumping out of water, and then you're Mm -hmm. doing almost a 90-degree turn to have to go uphill and get over another jump and... Talk me through that Rolex. Well, you know, in those days, we we were doing roads and tracks and steeplechase too. So it wasn't even just the cross country the way it is now. And the horses had to carry weight. The rider and the tack, but not the bridle. So your saddle and your breastplate and saddle pad and stuff, all that had to weigh 165 pounds. 
And I only weighed 110. So Gray had to carry 25 pounds of lead. And um, so that made it even more difficult back then. But I knew we were prepared. And he actually came in, and we were in the top five in dressage. And um, that put us in a, maybe it was, I think we might have been second in the dressage second mm-hmm. or third, third. So we were in a good place going into this cross country day. And so um, we did well on the steeplechase and we did the roads and tracks were fine. And what isn't evident from that film that's on YouTube is that, that my groom at the time stopped watching the clock so that I ended up being late to the start box so I started with minus X number of seconds and you, you know, you're trying to salvage every second you can when you're out there on cross country because the horses get tired and you, you have to save them for the end and there's the water jump. And (laughs) I, I lit out of air like a house on fire and Ray was thrilled because I wasn't trying to slow him down anywhere. He, we just ran like the, cowboys were after us and (laughs) and it was so exhilarating Tracy every jump came up and flowed it was just we were so we were in that zone Mm. of where everywhere we're just one being working toward the same thing and the horses were coming in tired and exhausted and Grave just flew through the finish flags as fast as he did when he left he we he was amazing and then miracle of miracles, we actually had a clean show jumping around, which was hard with Gray. He he was Irish and he really didn't care whether he hit the poles or not. <laughs> <laughs> we rattled the last jump. And I, I thought, I'm not going to look back. I'm just going to wait because the crowd will let me know if that pole falls or not. And it didn't. And, I was just, and, and there's just, there aren't words to describe the exhilaration of making a dream come true. They're just... Mm. Oh, I was, I don't, I think it took me days to come down off that high. Wow. Gray was pretty proud of himself. He loves to lead the victory gallop. He, he loved being, he always had to be the the horse in front. And in those days we did victory gallops. They don't do that stuff anymore, which I think is really sad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to go out and receive your ribbon and then the first 10 riders gallop around and then the rest of them peel off and the first place rider goes around again and and he loved that he loved when the crowd was all rooting for him oh, so special what a special horse he was you know he, he turned from being this frightened scaredy cat into um a very self-confident um arrogant <laughs> he 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 required homage you know if you came in the bar and you had to talk to him you had to acknowledge him or he'd, he'd be upset. <laughs> he could hold a grudge that horse. He could hold a grudge for a really long time. Wow. And they Always. say horses are not individuals. <laughs> That's got no idea. Right. Yeah. Wow. So what came after that? In 1982, the year I won Rolex, we went to the world championships that year in Germany. Mm-hmm. And my last show jumping school before we were leaving to go to Germany, to France first and then Germany, 
uh, gray shied at a shadow in between a combination and I I fell off and landed on a jump standard and broke two transverse processes in my back. Ouch. Yeah, ouch. And so then I had to call Jack Legoff and say that I'd had this accident and this was what was wrong. And, and he had to convince the committee to send Gray and me over there anyway, even though the, the world championships were five weeks later. So that wouldn't be enough time for the bones to heal, you know, mm. it was six weeks later, it wasn't much time. So I, he got them to send us and I spent, Everything but the, the last 10 days I spent on the ground while someone else rode gray for me, which was brutal for both of us. <laughs> I'm thinking of gray having somebody else yeah. riding him. <laughs> not a happy camper, trust me. There's more stories involved with that, but I'll spare you those. <laughs> he, he, um, I finally got on. He was so excited, and I was, I was okay. I had been to the hospital to get re-X-rayed, and they had told me, they did not recommend that the bones were not fully healed and they didn't think it was a good idea. And I went to Jack Legoff and I told him this and sobbed and he said, well, what, but tell me what you think. And I looked at him and I said, I can ride. And he said, well, show me. He said, take another week off and then we're going to put you up and we'll see how it goes. And Gray was so happy to have me back up. He was so careful with me. And so I got to ride him in the world championships and we came in second in the dressage. Wow. Huge deal. And we were out there on cross country. We're, we're, we're motoring along and there were two big oxers, big, two big oxers in a combination with one stride between them. And he made a really big effort over one of those oxers. And, and so I really gave with my arms and don't you know, those bones came apart again. <sighs> and suddenly I had, my, no left leg or left arm because it was on the left side and and I really couldn't help Gray anymore you know I mean I could hold the rein in my left hand but I couldn't I couldn't pull on him I couldn't support him I couldn't take any weight on it and he felt that and and he hesitated and I said he said we can do this and I said I he said I gotcha and I'm like okay so we kept going and um, and we, we, uh, we made it through the cross country and then we came in third overall. He had one rail down in show jumping. That's extraordinary. It what is. A horse. A, oh, what a, what a team. Like what a wow. team. Yeah. He loves He wouldn't let anyone else up there to do that. He wouldn't no. have anyone else's back. He would have thrown them off. <laughs> he would, yeah. Or bolting off with them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But he. He was, he loved the game and he knew the game. He understood the game. He knew that dressage came first and what was needed. And he knew all about the roads and tracks and the steeplechase. He was such a smart, highly intelligent horse Mm. that that everybody thought was really stupid when he first started out, but he ended up highly, highly intelligent. Pretty amazing. It's often the way. Yeah. Wow. So what came after that? Well, it's very interesting. In um, so the next Olympics were in 1984. So Gray and I competed. We went to that the next year. We went to badminton, which had always been for me a really big dream. But we we actually fell there, and mm-hmm. it was very muddy. And Gray set up for a downhill vertical stone wall, and it was 
it was a steep slope and it was muddy. And when he set up to push off, he stepped on his own front left hoof. Mm. And so only one leg left the ground. So he did a, you know, he fell and um, luckily flung me off, but we were both pretty injured. And so we didn't compete anymore in 1983. And 84 was the Olympic year. And we had to come back and repair our confidence after that fall, which you, you, there was no, it isn't like, oh, I approached it wrong or he took off or no, it was just an act of nature that that mm. happened. So it was sort of like coming out of the blue. It's hard to guard against something like that. Yeah, it's the uncontrollable. But we really came back well and um, and did well, but that year uh, was the last year for some of the riders. They were going to retire, and they got selected, and Gray and I were the reserve. Well, we were reserve. The reserves, there were two reserves. There was a traveling reserve and a non-traveling reserve, and we were the non-traveling reserve. And I have to tell you, I thought that my world had ended. It was mm. devastating to me that we weren't going to the Olympics. They were in Los Angeles. It was on our home turf. I was just devastated. But, you know, the divine works in strange ways. <laughs> not, too long, not too long after that, I got a phone call from that I thought was a prank call at first, but it turned out to be real, from someone who wanted to make a movie and wanted to know, did we, would we consider being doubles in the movie? Could, could, would we participate in this? And it was an eventing movie named Sylvester. Mm. Have you ever seen Sylvester? I haven't, but I'm going to write ah, it down. Well, there you go. Okay. I can't believe there's a horse movie in the world that I haven't seen. I know. <laughs> What You'll have to find on? it. I Amazon really. Amazon sells it. I mean, I don't know if it's in the European format, but anyway, so my husband and I talked it over and they wanted uh, our daughter to come as well with her pony because they needed background people. And, and so we, uh, my uh, Andy, my daughter and I ended up going to Kentucky for a month. We were in Kentucky and did all this filming for this movie Sylvester over the cross country course there at Rolex. So we were at the Kentucky horse park. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Melissa Gilbert from little house in the prairie. She was the star and the horse that she rode was actually named Sylvester. And, and he was a big flea bitten gray, much taller than the gray goose, but still, long like him and really we were the only ones that could have been her double um uh, interestingly melissa and i had the same haircut just just by coincidence and we were of the same build and height and uh, gray was long and flea bitten at that point and so uh, that movie has actually i get a lot of uh, messages and emails from people who started eventing or rode because they saw that movie. It turned oh, out to be quite inspirational. Beautiful. It's a grade C movie. <clears throat> it's not a great movie, but it's, it's an eventing movie, you know? Yeah, it's a horse movie. It's a horse movie. So that filled a bit of the hole from the Olympic team that year? Yes, it did. And actually, Gray and I are almost, I think we're better known for having been in Sylvester than we are as, as it is as much as, if not more than our competitive career. 
So it's funny how things work out, you know? Mm, so then that, in 85, we went to Bocolo in Holland, and we came in second, and we went to Australia for the 1986 World Championships. And, and for that, we had to be in quarantine for a month or six weeks mm -hmm. even maybe at Gladstone before we went to Australia. And then we had to be in quarantine there for another week or two before we could actually travel all the way across the country to the venue for the, um, it was a, a Gawler um, was where it was held, G-A-W-L-E-R. Mm -hmm. It turned out to be the adventure of a lifetime. And I, I began to wonder if maybe the, um, all of my eventing had just been to get me to Australia because the country affected me so deeply on a spiritual level. And I it's just... all the culture in the dirt, I think it's... Oh, it's that red that's in the have, air. Yeah, you know? to have the oldest co known culture to have, to have had this country for such a long time. It's, yes. It's only starting to really affect us now. But when you go to the outback, you can't go through any kind of outback Australia or country Australia and not feel it. That's and right. Beautiful. The, the other riders flew from Sydney to Gawler, but I thought, I said, no, I want to travel with the horses. Mm -mm, I want to go across the outback because it just, I I'm, was, have always been into indigenous populations and mm. the relationship with nature that they have. And, um, oh, it was just, and the birds, oh my goodness, the birds. And of course the kangaroos, you know, all Americans are fascinated with kangaroos. Yes. <laughs> and so it was just uh, a truly amazing adventure. And I came back very changed from this trip. So Gawler's in South Australia. So, yes. So you drove from Sydney across mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. South Australia. That's a decent drive. Yes, it was. It took days. And and here's, you know, this is the the magic of Linda Tellington Jones, where the horses had a terrible, terrible trip over on the plane. The the plane took off late because one of the there were some wild animals also on the plane and one of them escaped to Kennedy Airport and they had to catch it. <laughs> oh, no. I know. I you know. And so the plane left late. So then where they stopped to refuel had a curfew and they wouldn't let them come into the airport. And the horses sat out on the runway without food and water. Oh. And, um, it, they arrived in bad shape. They were really exhausted and thin. And uh, so the next morning or, or the day after that, I'm, I'm in quarantine, you know, working with Gray. And, and this guy comes over and says, you have a phone call from the States and you know, you have to come to the office to take it. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, something's wrong with one of the children. You know, it's, it's my husband would never call if it was anyway, it turned out to be Linda Tellington Jones. Wow. And I said, Linda, where are you? And she said, well, I'm at the front gate to the quarantine center. And I said, what are you doing here? And she said, I was in, was lying on the beach in Hawaii, which is where she lives. And I just knew I had to be in Australia and I knew you were here for the world championships. So I figured it had to be because of you. Is there any way I can help? And I said, Oh my God. Oh, yes. <laughs> the 
that's some pretty big intuition for a woman lying on the beach in Hawaii to get uh, to Australia. Wow. That's Linda. That is Linda. Boy, I hope you felt supported in that one. That's extremely. Uh, you think? I mean, she <laughs> flew straight over. Oh, my word, to Australia. So she worked on Gray and helped him a lot. And and there wasn't, she, then she says to me, well, what are you doing for the next few days? And I said, well, not much. You know, the horses can't be worked uh, for a while. You know, they have to be worked very lightly. She said, can your groom do that? And I said, absolutely. And she said, would you like to come on a journey with me? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and I got out my credit card and we hopped on a small plane and she took me to meet some of her author friends. And, oh, we went to Queensland, and we rode in the rainforest, and we slept out under the stars, on the, and we went to the beach on the night of a lunar eclipse. It was just oh. magical. The whole thing was magical. It was just magical. Wow. And my groom survived Ryan and Gray while I was gone, which, um, as he got better, that can always be. <laughs> he, 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 he did a, we used to call it, flying a kite because he would just leap so much on the end of a, you know, he would just leap and squeal. Yeah. He felt good. Yeah. So, uh, we were, um, the world championships that year were plagued by very bad weather. It had been a drought for a long time and it was hot. It was September again. No, mm. it was spring. Cause that's your fall. So it was, it was spring. And there had been a drought, and um, and it rained the day before cross country, and as a result, all that clay turned into uh, it was like being on a skating rink. And the people worked all night long to try to make the footing better, but horses were slipping and falling and getting injured all over the course. And Gray didn't fall, but he did. Um, he slid on a takeoff, and he clever horse it was an oxer you know made out of big tree trunks mm -hmm. well, not so big actually medium tree trunks tree yeah and so he he felt that he wasn't going to make it all the way over this big oxer and land downhill and and be able to take a stride and jump the next oxer so he banked it and banking is when a horse puts his hind feet down on top of the fence mm -hmm. and pushes off so I don't know how he found the pole, the front pole with his hind feet, I'll never know. But he did. But he, the edge of his shoe got caught in the wire that was holding the poles together, and he ripped it off, a hind shoe. So now he's got three shoes. And I slowed him up. But he was like, no, no, we got to keep going. We got to keep going. So then when we went through the water, he pulled off his right front. So now he's got diagonal shoes missing. And I tried to pull him up again, and he said to me, and very, very clearly, he said, if you pull me up, I will not survive very long. It will break my heart and my spirit. And I know, and I'm like, but I don't want you to get hurt. And he's like, I can do this, and I want to do this. So I just let him pick his own pace, and I, we went around the course, and we finished. But once the adrenaline got out of his system, he was a pretty sore puppy. So I withdrew mm. him from that. So um, so we didn't place there. And I retired him in 1988. And he had a wonderful ceremony at the Kentucky Horse Park. 
Oh, he would have loved that. Yeah, oh, he did love it. <laughs> he was there. He, he, um, you know, I did a, I wrote him, I did a little dressage and, and then I decided I was going to show him off a little bit because in those days we had to train the horses to jump false ground lines because that, because of the way jumps were constructed back then on press country. I mean, they had to learn to jump anything and learn to read a fence, no matter what it looked like. They had to figure it out. And yeah. so there was a big oxer on the course going slightly down a hill, down a slope on the course, because back then it was all fields. And, and, uh, and, and we were doing this ceremony in the stadium ring. So I jumped Gray backwards over the oxer up the hill. And wow. I knew he could do it. You know, he was still very strong. He just got bored. I retired him because he got bored with the courses that he'd been jumping already. And his heart wasn't singing anymore. So I, so he wowed the crowds. And he, yeah, he had a good retirement ceremony for a lot of people. Were you at a loss after that? Yes, I was. So my whole life changed after Australia. And I came home knowing that I, um, I, I, I was, as you said, I was a bit of, of at a loss. I had, mm. every one of my dreams had come true. I had met, um, you know, I was married. I had two wonderful children. I had a lovely home. I had a barn with 10 stalls. I had horses in training. I had people taking lessons. Every one of my wishes had been fulfilled. And suddenly, it, I just couldn't do that anymore. So I ended up getting divorced. Mm. and traveling for a while and then um, uh, we were in West Virginia and so a year after I got divorced um, our, our daughter Andy disappeared and she was um, at her college in Virginia with three other people practicing for a team vaulting session where they do gymnastics on horseback. Mm -hmm. There was a national championship that they were getting ready for. And uh, on July 4th was the, they were leaving on the 5th and on July 4th, they decided they were tired and hot and they wanted to go uh, ride inner tubes on the new river, which was a local river. And they did that. And Andy disappeared there. So I got the phone call on July 4th. I woke up, feeling horrible. You know that feeling of dread yeah. you get when you re realize that that you've left your person, you know, or something horrible has happened somewhere. Mm -hmm. You just have that horrible feeling in the pit of your stomach. And it lasted all day long until evening. And then it just suddenly was gone. Mm -hmm. And the next day the police finally got hold of me. They tracked me down because they didn't know where I was and told me that Andy had gone missing and that they were afraid she had drowned in the river. But it turned out she didn't drown in the river, and it's still a mystery to this day. The the details of how she disappeared are a mystery. Nobody knows. No one was ever caught. And she was missing for three months, which I have to tell you is the worst hell somebody can go through. It's just awful not knowing I where your child can't even begin done. to imagine. I. It's, yeah, I, I had to just survive moment by moment. Mm. And I was supported by 
all the wonderful mothers of my students in West Virginia and by spiritual friends. They were just really there for me. And you would have needed um, it. I would have needed someone well, to have, be on either arm every day and literally carry absolutely. me around. Yep. <laughs> I, I was walking. Yeah. I was walking, but it was like, you know, I was going, it was just remote. Mm. It was, I was on remote. I was on autopilot. Mm. It was just, the shock was so great. Um, but on, um, on November 1st, so, which is All Saints Day, her bones were found, uh, literally tripped over by a hunter in the woods in West Virginia. So the federal, the FBI got in on it because it was interstate, but nobody ever found anything. It's still a mystery. Um, but her, um, her outfit was the same as the one she disappeared in. So I know that when that horrible feeling of dread lifted was when Andy died. Mm. Um, I know that she was killed on July 4th. Mm. And um, at least we had resolution. There, You can have then, you can move on when you have that knowledge that your child has died. And you can, you know, we cremated her and, and her ashes are buried in a beautiful place. And... Um, but it was three years. It took me three years to come out of what I call the gray zone mm. where everything nothing had color. There was just no, um, I could laugh from time to time in the moment, but there was no joy in life. And it was the horses and nature, the beauty in nature that kept me sane enough to not kill myself mm-hmm. or do anything equally stupid, which um, Andy and I had been so close. Uh, as she grew up. And of course we had some difficulties in her teenage years when she was younger that all mothers and daughters have, but we were very close and we wanted to work together when she got out of college and it was a terrible blow. So the, my life changed dramatically after that. And I went on a spiritual journey and a spiritual path and uh, I bred a, um, a mare that was two generations of the, she was a second generation of the Irish horses that we had brought over. I bred her to a Connemara pony and to get a horse for my older years. And, and Gideon Goodhart was born and he has been an amazing partner for the rest of my years. He has just been, uh, he's truly a gift from God, that horse. So you got two in a lifetime. Yes, I've actually had more because Gray, uh, Raph was another horse like that. Mm. You know, the one that whistle up out of the field yeah. and he would, he, we won a lot of prizes together. And so I've had three worth of really, really deep, deep heart connection. Mm. Mm. And, and Gid is um, an extraordinary communicator when he, I was in the stall with his dam when he was born. And, uh, he was only part way out. Um, I broke the sack and he lifted his little wet head up and looked me right in the eyes. And, and in my head, I heard the words, I'm here and I'm here for you. Oh. I, I was like, well, whoa, <laughs> okay. Wow. And then I was horrified when he was a stallion because I had hoped for a mayor that I could keep the bloodlines going. And it was like, I just, I've never worked around stallions. I don't know anything about handling stallions. I'm like, 
I guess I'm going to have to learn. Yeah. And so the, the rest of my life has been this journey with Gideon, who is um, most, when people meet him, they usually call him an equine Buddha. Or they'll say he has very human eyes. They used to say that of the gray goose as well. Mm. Yeah, just really uh, excellent communicators. If you listen, yeah, and if you don't, they make it clearer. <laughs> <laughs> excellent communicators. <laughs> uh huh. So get in. Nothing that I did before to start horses worked with Gideon. Mm. He sent me on a different path right from the beginning. And I, so I had to study clipper training, which was a huge um, safety valve for us. When, when he was a young stallion and mares would really distract him and get him wired up, I could get his attention back with the clicker. And food, thank God, always trumped uh, hormones. So that worked out well. Very lucky. And, yeah, very lucky, yes. And he's always just been a kind, kind soul who tries hard to do the best thing and work with humans. He's had to board his entire life, and that's not easy for a stallion, mm. but he's always the best behaved horse in the barn. And is very, I train all my horses to be careful of humans because humans make mistakes and get themselves in trouble, and I expect my horses to get them out. Yeah. <laughs> like, after yourself, buddy, because... Humans make mistakes, and um, and Gib was not an event horse. He 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 was very bold, but he was so as a stallion, so in tune with all of life that he didn't like disturbing other creatures, like insects and things that live in old railroad ties and logs that are used on cross country courses for young horses. Right? Wow. <laughs> he would jump anything spooky. But he wouldn't go near an old log or railroad tie. It was just like, what? And um, I had to go through an animal communicator to figure out what the problem was. And he he wouldn't walk across a stream in the spring if there were tadpoles swimming around. He's like, no, I'll hurt them. I'm like, trust me, they'll move. No, I'll hurt them. <laughs> <laughs> we're trotting through. We were trotting through a field once when he was young, and he suddenly pulled a step with his right front leg. He, he didn't fall or trip or anything. He just didn't take that step somehow and kept going and a rabbit ran out. You know, he didn't want to step on the rabbit. Mm. He's just, he's all, so in tune with all of life mm. and taught me so much about nature and the interconnectedness and connection with a capital C and he sent me to life co spiritual life coaching school. He said, you've got to help the humans more. You gotta have more tools and techniques to be able to translate for us horses and help the humans understand us better. Mm. So um, it's been quite a journey with this boy. He be, he became a dressage horse and he did well right through fourth level. Um, and now he's teaching me a lot more about riding from energy rather than physical aids. Fantastic. So, mm. So even more Sally Swift coming through, but from the horse. Yes, yes, yes. He is an amazing teacher. That's incredible. So where are you at now? I'm living in Pennsylvania. 
um, might be moving to North Carolina. I have an offer there, um, but the place hasn't been finished, is not finished being built yet. So, um, but right now I'm in Pennsylvania. And what keeps you going every day? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> you've, you've fulfilled every dream there is to fulfill. You've had the greatest heartache I believe there could ever be on the earth. You've had connection with all these incredible horses. What, what more do you have to do? Do you have new goals? Where are you going from here? Well, what I would like to do is share everything, Tracy. That's what keeps me going. That's what gives me <clears throat> excitement when I wake up in the morning. I, I write. I love to write. And so I'm working on four or five different books <laughs> that need to be written. You know, there's Gideon's book and Gray's book and my book and a book about surviving the death of a child. And, yeah. Um, so I share my writings on Facebook and um, I keep, I have kept a journal of Gideon's of my time with Gideon since he was four years old, a daily journal. So I have all of that that I'd like to edit and, you know, how to, how to train a horse in a different way. I would like to do that book as well. So, and Gideon writes messages. So through me, and he has his own voice and his own way of saying things. And that needs to be in a book. I published those on, he has his own Facebook page, you know, Gideon Goodhart. Fantastic. Yeah. So he's just, um, he's such an amazing horse. So sharing and it's, you know, if I can help one person to understand something that makes their life better and helps them find more connection in any way, then then I have a life well lived. Mm. And, and, you know, actually, there's so much to my life, Tracy. I was thinking, my inner voice was telling me I'd left something out. In 1996, I was traveling through the West um, by myself. I was driving from the East Coast. I drove to the West and I was teaching lessons because the winter here was so bad that I, I didn't have any business. So I went West where the weather was better. And I had a single car accident at dusk in, in Texas on the desert with nobody around. My forerunner blew diagonal tires and it flipped two and three quarter times. And I was doing 75 miles an hour when it happened. So uh, I shouldn't even be here. Correct. And I... <laughs> You are one well-looked-after woman. You think? Oh, my word. So a truck driver saw my vehicle turned, whatever position it came to rest on in, on the desert. And even though the light was, it was getting dark, it was dusk, he, he stopped and pulled over. And, oh, by the way, he just happened to be an EMT, right? Mm. So... He, I guess, got me out of the, I mean, I wasn't conscious. I wasn't breathing. I wasn't, I wasn't alive, but he got me started back up again. And then someone else pulled over and they happened to be uh, Seattle Emergency Services. And then here's the funny part. <laughs> 
then another car stopped and there was a priest and three nuns in the car. It's like, nope, not my time. Just not my wow. time. So I was unconscious. Um, they air, you know, uh, they helicoptered coptered me to a trauma center in El Paso, Texas. And so they had to get, um, they had to do some surgery on my head because a forerunner is, um, you know, it's an open SUV. And I had all these groceries and my video camera and horse equipment and bits were all in the back of that thing, not anchored down. So it all flew through the car and a lot of it hit me in the mm. head. And I didn't come to um, until I guess later that night. I don't know when it was. It was after the surgery when I finally like, came back into my body and and I, I wear glasses and I'm pretty blind without them. So I open my eyes. So I, I'm like, okay, I don't know where I am. I don't know what's happened. Obviously I'm injured because I could see my hands that were on top of my chest and they were black and they were huge. Mm. They were just black. And, and I thought, okay, but my back was okay, which was really good because I've really messed my back up. <laughs> and I'm looking around and there was this blonde, tall young man sitting in a chair next to me and he stood up and he said, welcome back. And he asked me a few questions, you know, like, do you know who you are? Do you know what happened? And he, and, and he handed me a single rose and then he walked out and then a nurse came in and I said, who, who was that young man? And she had no idea what I was talking about. Oh, I know. It's goosebump stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of time there that you were out. Do you remember? Yes, I do. I remember very well. There was no tunnel. But I was with Andy, and I was uh, in a place that was just pure light. It was a room, actually, and there was a table, and Andy and all her friends were there, and it was joy beyond words to express. It was, it was happiness, and there was joy, and it was and sharing and connection, and it, it was amazing. And then, and then... It was like I got told that I had to leave, and I'm like, no, uh, no, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to go back. I want to stay here. I'm really happy here. And and in in my memory, I'm like the the cartoon character with a you know my hands and my feet mm -hmm. on either side of the doorway. There was a doorway. It was like no, no, and then and then I woke up, and uh, that. That experience, I mean, after, you know, I had traumatic brain injury. So there was a lot of coming back from that on many levels. My balance was messed up. My, my memory is still Swiss cheesed, but I would repeat a lot of stories. It was just a lot of coming back from that. But, but what I've learned from all of that is that uh, when it's your time mm -hmm. to go, it's your time to go. And when it's not your time to go, it's not. Because Andy was taken early. I couldn't go when I would have been thrilled to go. And I was pretty depressed for a year after that at not being allowed to stay. But now I'm finding my groove again. And I'm, um, I'm really enjoying working with other people, other horse women, other horse men and horses and and sharing Gideon's teachings and this new way of being with horses, because I really think 
Tracy, the animals are coming, I call it coming out of the closet. Yeah. They are, they are making their intelligence and their sentience known to us humans. Yeah. Because if we don't all work together, the planet isn't going to make it, yeah. you know, or we won't. Let me put it this way. The planet, I think, will make it, but we're not going to. Yeah, she's too smart to keep us going if we don't wake up soon. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the big, the big Mother Earth is, uh, is, is, yeah. is rumbling, and if we don't listen, yeah, I'm a bit with you on that. And mm-hmm. and since starting this podcast and talking to people like yourself, I tend to agree and here in Australia, our awareness of Aboriginal culture is similar because they work and their traditions and their 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 way of life is very similar yeah. to what horses are teaching yes. us. And so Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's it's coming through and it's coming through in many ways and that's why this podcast excites me beyond belief. I'm like, we're riding this wave and this is the wave I want to be on. Yeah, I want to bring this to as many people as possible because they are speaking up and we either listen or we um, get left behind. That's right. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly with you. Mm. Mm. Tell me one, um, one amazing story about Gideon. Gideon, when he was younger, I did lots of different things to help him become very confident in any sort of situation. And so I brought, I went to the grocery store and bought those, those helium balloons, you know, the, the kind, I don't know if you have them in Australia, but they're shapes, they're made of like tinfoil and they're very bright colors and they come in the shape of fish and birds. And yes, we have the ball. Yes. Okay, great. So I warned everybody in the bar and I was bringing these balloons in and um, I'd already introduced Gid to one of these balloons, but I brought in like five of them and they have a weighted end, you know, so you, they can sit on the ground. Um, with, and then there's the string and there's the balloon. So one by one, I brought them in his stall and he was cool. He really liked them, actually. He was like nuzzling them and, and just sort of standing with his head in the middle of them, sort of meditating with these balloons. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. So the next step, I wanted to ride him carrying the balloons. So I got him all tacked up. And then I had his bridle and bit and saddle and all that stuff on. And then I remembered I had forgotten something in the tack room, which was all the way at the other end of the barn. So I went to the other end of the barn, leaving him alone in the stall with the balloons and uh, got caught up in a conversation and came back about uh, five, a little bit more minutes later. And there was only, there were only two balloons in the stall. And I thought, oh, you little booger, you know. And I'm looking all over the stall floor, and I can't find popped balloons. I didn't hear a pop. I didn't, I can't find these balloons. And I'm like, and he's looking at me with this look that he gives me like, are you paying attention? Wow. Are you getting a message? That wise, wise, sage look, just waiting for me to figure it out. So finally, I looked up into the ceiling thinking, well, maybe he broke the string, although I couldn't find any string or any weights in the stall either. Mm -hmm. I looked up and there was the dragonfly balloon up in the ceiling with no weight, but I never found a weight. Nobody ever found a weight. 
and I found the fish deflated in his water bucket. <laughs> he was singing he's looking, all home. I just had such goosebumps. And I said, you know, you're, you're weirding me out with this stuff. And he was just like his little equivalent of a horsey grin. Like, yeah, there's a lot more to us than you think. So he had liberated these balloons. Uh, there was a third one and it was a butterfly. I don't remember where I found that one, but yeah, it was weird. It was really weird. How fantastic. What do you think horses are here to teach us? To me, horses are the bridge between heaven and earth. And they are here to teach us to live our truth with a capital T. And the best way I can explain that truth is that um, we're born, um, I think it was Wordsworth wrote a poem and one of the lines was, you know, we're born trailing clouds of glory. But then as David White says, the British poet, he says, all our parents want is a good little girl or boy. So we are born connected the way the animals are, the way the, uh, the Aborigines are. We are born connected, but it's trained out of us as we grow that animals don't speak. Plants have no consciousness. The weather is just the weather. Uh, everything's here for our use and we just trash it up. Uh, we, we have to uh, stand straight. We can't move in school. If we don't learn the way the teachers tell us we learn, then we're stupid. We're labeled and we're trained out of all this glorious wildness that makes us a part of everything. And so Gideon and I, when we do uh, life coaching and uh, and a lot of my writing is about coming back to your divine, the, the blueprint, the original blueprint pl- print with which you were born. That joy, that wonder with a capital W that we all experience as children. The world is new every day and we're paying attention. That gets strained out of us. So I think that's the lesson they're here to teach us. Beautiful. I couldn't agree with you more. And Mm. if people would like to connect with you in some way over the wide world web, how do they do that? My um, um, website? Yeah, that one, that word. <laughs> start with the website. The website is www.thewayofthehorse.com. Fantastic. And are you on what social media handles and, and channels do you have? Just Facebook. That's all I have time to handle. It's hours every day as it is. Yeah. So I have a personal page under my name, Kim Walness, W-A-L-N, as in Nancy, E-S as in Sam, or I also have a business page, which is Kim Walness dash the way of the horse. Wonderful. Well, Kim, I cannot tell you how much I have enjoyed this episode. This podcast completely fulfills my own love and passion and I get to indulge in the things I love so much. 
So um, I have enjoyed this conversation so much and I wanted to say thank you for your time. It's evening over in America and it's morning over here in Australia and I know time is precious and you've given me so much of it. So thank you so much for that. But even more so, thank you for what you do for horses every single day. My passion is about bringing people like you and the awareness of horses to the everyday people and every single one of us. And thank you for everything that you do for them because I know that they certainly do appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Tracy, so much for asking me. And I'm honored, honored to be on your podcast. How are you going after that one? Pretty extraordinary, isn't she? If you'd like to get in touch with Kim, then you can either follow the links in the show notes or you can go to the blog on my website where you can also see photos of Kim and her horses. We're at comealongfortheride.com.au I'm in a mission to make the world a better place for horses. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses, please engage with me somehow. You can leave a review on iTunes or Facebook, share or comment on social media posts, or tell your friends about the podcast. You will find all the links to our social media on our website, comealongfortheride.com.au. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you'll find me on LinkedIn. If your friends don't know how to podcast, just send them to my website and tell them to hit play. It's the most user-friendly way to listen for anyone you know who would love to listen but doesn't know how. I would love it if you would get in touch and say hi. Let me know who you would like to hear interviewed on the podcast. I have some wonderful people lined up to speak to. This is your show as much as it is mine, so please, if there's anyone you'd like to hear from, get in touch via the website or social media. A huge thanks to Colleen Mack, who got in touch with me to let me know about Kim Wellness. I'm so glad you messaged me, as my life is certainly richer for speaking with Kim. I hope yours is too. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.